0: You know it has been a really busy week here at MacArthur Park with uh, reading camp and and work camp and uh, while I've already mentioned a lot of the great things that that happened this past week, uh, none of those things would really happen if there wasn't a lot of prep work, uh, weeks and weeks and and really months of of preparation time and prayer time and planning time and organizing time and recruiting time and, and all of that. And uh, the, the success of those two programs that we had, those two events that we had this last week, uh, really go to a lot of people behind the scenes that had been doing a lot of the work. And uh, I, I really think that those folk need to be recognized by our church family. Uh, Richard Schau uh, was kind of the ramrod with, um, with reading camp, and he had a great crew of, of teachers and support folk. Uh, I'd like to have you stand and just remain standing just for a minute. We're going to recognize you in a minute. But if you did anything with with reading camp this last week, we'd like for you to stand. And please remain standing. Also, I I think we need to recognize uh, Cody Spear and his crew of folk here at MAC that were involved in helping uh, get these 200... You you can imagine what hurting just your own family of teenagers is like, let alone 200, right? And they showed great leadership. They showed great faith. They they sacrificed a lot this last week to be able, in this kind of heat, to paint these eight houses for families that that could really use that kind of help. And I'd like to have Cody and his crew to stand up with these from Reading Camp. If you were involved with Work Camp, please stand and be recognized. And while uh, while we're thinking about reading camp and work camp, let me put a plug in. It's it's July, but next July is coming. And I want to, to put a bug in your ear, be praying about it, and thinking about the ways that you can be involved in reading camp and work camp next year. And not only to be a blessing to other people, but to receive that blessing from God. Amen? Now, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah. You know that uh, from beginning of this year in January going to the end of the year, what we're doing is the Holy Word series where we're going to look at every book of the Bible this year and, and learn something about it. And I think that's really important for a couple of reasons. One is you can go for many years and not read some of the books of the Bible. They're just... They're, they're a little bit hard to understand. The language may be built poetic or it may be full of prophecies that are hard to understand. And you can go a lot of years without reading some books of the Bible. And that's just not, that's just not good for us spiritually speaking. So we want to do this series in order to help us to, to go through these books and to read them and have the words you know, lie on our heart and reside in our mind and to shape the way that we live as human beings. The second reason is, is this. We're people of the Word. We believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God. And for us to live as His people and to to know what His grace and His joy and His presence and His lordship and what it means to be a disciple and all of that means, then we need to be acquainted with God's Word. And so for no other reason than just to spend this year... Starting in Genesis and ending the year in Revelation, and getting our mind around that one story that the Bible talks about. The, the, the story about God and man, and how things, uh, the, the, the wheels came off the wagon, how this became a fallen world, and what God is doing to put it back together again is always worthwhile for God's people. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Jeremiah. Uh, 52 chapters. We're not going to be able to look at it a whole lot in depth, but hopefully by the end of the message, you're going to be somewhat acquainted with Jeremiah and find yourself reading it on a yearly basis and being blessed by it. Now, before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we are so thankful for every opportunity you give us to be involved in, in your work in this community, to be light and to be a blessing and to be generous and to be graceful, and to be gracious, and to be loving to folk in this community in ways that many of them have never been blessed and loved, and 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 taken care of, and and given reasons, Father, to smile. And we're thankful for all of that that's happened this week. And and I can't help but think, in the words that 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 Jeff during our communion devotional spoke about we all find ourselves in a place where we know we need to get out. We know we need to be redeemed. We know that we need to have that, 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 that terrible relationship ended so that the right one we can enter into. I'm so thankful that You've made that possible for us through Jesus. And we pray, Father, that Your Word will always be in our heart. And that Your Spirit, Father, will strengthen us and help us to become more like Him every day. And that regardless, whatever situation, whatever comes to us day by day in this life, that we will find that joy and we will find that peace that passes understanding in such a way, Father, that we have a poise and we have a buoyancy in this life, regardless of the tragedy, the valley, whatever mountaintop we might find ourselves in. We find ourselves in Your presence. And we're so thankful for Jeremiah and these, these words that he has spoken. And we pray that you give us ears to hear it and eyes to see it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a, a really good article that I read uh, sometime back. Kevin Eikenberry, in an article about biographies, gives us five reasons why reading biographies is a really smart thing to do. Number one, and you can write these down on your outline, they allow you to stand on the shoulders of giants. They allow you to stand on the shoulders of giants. Everybody's heard of Isaac Newton. He had a friend by the name of Robert Hooke that was equally famous, maybe not quite as popular, but equally famous. And he wrote in a letter to Robert Hooke these words that have always meant a lot to me. He says, if I have seen further, it's because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. And that's one of the great things that you learn about... uh, your own life and about life in general in reading about the lives of other people. It's like standing on their shoulders and being able to learn from their lives what is possible through their achievements and, and being able to implement some of that in your own life. Number two, they remind you that history repeats itself. What they went through, we're going to go through. One of the things that's just kind of cyclical throughout all of history is that it's, it's always going to come around. We're going to face some of the same issues, some of the same temptations, some of the same crises, some of the same moments of prosperity. We face what they face. How do they handle it? One of the benefits of reading a biography is to learn that. Number three, they promote self-discovery. As you read uh, the lives of, of great people, whether it's American history or world history or whatever it might be, you begin to compare yourself to them and you begin to think, you know, what, what is it about them that made them great that I might as a virtue or some kind of a characteristic I need to develop or work on in my own life? Number four, they allow you to see the world in new ways. They allow you to see what is possible in the world. And then lastly, they give you mentors at a distance. And as you read their life, it it might be Abraham Lincoln, maybe George Washington, it may be John Adams, it may be somebody even more contemporary than that, but you think about what they went through and how they dealt with it and what advice would they give you if they were sitting there with you in this situation that you find yourself in, what advice would they give you to be able to help you to go through it successfully? So they become mentors at a distance, a distance of time and space. Now, that is one of the benefits, I think, of knowing the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah will address the same spiritual issues of his contemporaries. Thomas Schreiner kind of boils it down to to really, two to help us to get our mind around it. It's basically judgment and salvation. That God is going to inflict His wrath upon Judah for violating His covenant, worshiping other gods, and not obeying Torah, the the law of Moses and and because of those three things happening in that culture that godly culture that was supposed to be Israel that was supposed to be Judah it begins to unravel and all of the terrible things that that were never supposed to be a part of God's people begin happening in those those relationships man to man and and woman to woman, and, and with neighbors and colleagues, and so on and so forth. Here is kind of, and there are several summary statements in Jeremiah about the problem. I want to read you the one in Jeremiah chapter 11, summary statement of the problem. Jeremiah says, they have returned to the sins of their ancestors who refused to listen to my words. And so basically Jeremiah is saying at that point, one of the reasons that there is so much ungodliness and so much unraveling of our culture and things are just falling apart and there's oppression and there's injustice and there's, there's rampant crime and dishonesty, all of these kinds of things. It's because God's word is no longer penetrating people's hearts. And he continues, he says, They have followed other gods to serve them. Both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. You, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. And the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. And so in a, in, a, in a very pungent and poignant summary statement, basically Jeremiah is saying that, that God is bringing His anger upon Judah because you have, in a sense, committed adultery so many times that the relationship that God and His people were supposed to have, that like marriage was mutually exclusive, has become so diluted that it barely exists at all, in name only. And because of that, there's going to be Punishment. But then the flip side, the other theme of Jeremiah is that salvation is going to come in the end to the faithful remnant. Now, we've looked at some of these same themes over the last couple of weeks as we've been going through these prophets. And instead of covering some of the same ground as we have seen in the colleagues of of Jeremiah and, and... and, and going over some of the same uh, points that you know that I think we're well acquainted with, what we're going to do is we're going to do something different with Jeremiah this morning. We're going to look at a couple of themes in his life because of the biographical information is so great in that book. We're going to look at his life, and then we're going to see two lessons from that life. Now, the historical context of Jeremiah is found in the very first verse of the first chapter. The ministry begins during the reign of Josiah, which would put it about 627 B.C., More or less, the ministry ends during the reign of Zedekiah, the last king of South Judah, which would be 586 B.C. And as you know, that is when the Babylonians come for the third and great time, 586 B.C., and they destroy Jerusalem, they tear down the walls, they they destroy and devastate the, the populace, and they destroy the temple and carry those people off into captivity into the land of Babylon. Now, we will follow the sequence of events as they are presented in the book. Although, as you read through the book on your own this week, what you're going to discover is that it is, they're not presented chronologically, but we are going to go with them in the sequence of the book itself. And we're going to begin with the life of Jeremiah, and we're going to see it from three different angles. Number one, the call, the ministry, and then number three, the suffering. Let's begin with the call. Verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now that's how the book of Jeremiah opens, with God calling him even before he is born, calling Jeremiah to be a prophet. For Jeremiah to be able to complete the kind of ministry that he has been called to do, he will need to know without a shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign. That God is in control. That even before Jeremiah breathed for the very first time and saw the light of day, before he even came out of his mother's womb, God knew who He was. And that God was calling Him even before He was an actual human being coming out of the womb, before He was even alive in that way, God was calling Him into ministry. Now, why would He need to know that kind of sovereignty at that point? Well, we continue in verse 17. God says, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you. And what Jeremiah is being told by God is you need to get up and you need to put on your combat ready clothing. You need to get dressed for combat. In the old King James, in the old New American Standard, standards, you need to get up and you need to gird up your loins. God is going to fortify you like iron. He's going to make you like a wall of, of, of bronze against the people, against the enemies. Now, why is God telling him that? Why is he telling you, you need to get ready for combat. You need to get ready for some rough times. Why? It's because, verse 19, they will fight against you. Now, the message of Jeremiah is going to collide with the dominant world views that were in Judah at that point. The land is polluted, meaning that that the the relationship with God is is not as pure as it could be. That these other idols have come in and, and soiled and polluted the relationship. Has diluted the passion and the commitment that they have with God. And part of that has been given to the other idols, which are nothing. And so the land is polluted, although Judah denies it. And Judah is threatened, although she doesn't realize it. What God tells Jeremiah is that there's going to be this great warrior nation that is both cruel and without mercy. This warrior nation that is brutal, whose voice roars like the sea, is going to come against Judah herself. And at one point Jeremiah is told in in chapter 5, you know what I want you to do? I want you to go through some vine rows and as you go through I want you to rip off some of the branches. Now, you you know, when you see somebody doing that today in this urban setting of San Antonio, we don't think too much about it. But in in an agrarian driven society where everything depended on the land and the produce of the land, all eyes are on the rain clouds and all all eyes are on the land. And as this prophet is going through these vine rows as producing food for the nation, and he begins to tear off some of the branches, not all of them, but just enough to devastate, everybody's going to go, what in the world is that crazy prophet doing? Doesn't he know that that, that's that's nutty? That doesn't make sense. Why is he tearing off these branches and devastating the land and devastating our food? And the answer is because God is going to do that to Judah unless she repents. And with that in mind, we launch into his ministry, the ministry of Jeremiah. Chapter 7, Jeremiah preaches the famous temple sermon. He goes to the gate of the temple there in Jerusalem, and as people are going in and out of the temple, he preaches to them, And you know the temple. We talked about the temple from uh, the historical, earlier historical books in the Old Testament. It was David's idea and David wanted to do it. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I never asked you to build me a house. In fact, I don't want you to build a house. You can't build me a house. Your hands are covered in blood. Your son Solomon will do it. Now, it's great that you wanted to do it, but I'm going to build you a house. And later on in life, David comes up with the plans, and he even foots a lot of the construction bill. But it's Solomon who actually gets the temple built in Jerusalem, and it's the, 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 the Solomonic temple. And in the ancient world, it was wondrous. It was stellar. It was a place that when you walked into it, nobody had to tell you that this was a place of God, because it spoke of God wherever you went. It was a place that you worshipped God in and you were made right with God. It was a place to to know that God is still in control. But by the time of Jeremiah, spiritually speaking, although physically it's wondrous and beautiful, spiritually speaking, it is no longer the embodiment of transcendence. In fact, Jeremiah says something that you would recognize from the lips of Jesus. He says, it's become a den of what? A den of what? Say it. Robbers. Robbers. Now when Jesus says it over in the New Testament in the Gospels, the emphasis is on the robbers. There are people that are gouging the people with money and with the, the price of sacrifices and these kinds of things, and they're going in to worship God with their hearts not really connected to God because they're so angry and so disappointed with the way that they have been exorbitantly charged for all of these sacrifices. But in Jeremiah's day, the emphasis is on the beginning of that phrase, it's a den of robbers. Now, back in the ancient history of the absher family in the 1960s we would take while we were living in Wichita Falls from time to time we would take a vacation up into southeast oklahoma we would go to uh, beaver's bend beautiful place we also went to a place called uh, a robber's cave which was near wilburton oklahoma and uh, again it was a beautiful place where you rent a cabin and do all kinds of vacation type deal and we would deals and we would we would go up and we would look at the robber's cave and You know, I can remember as this little dude asking my father, I said, why why do they call it a robber's cave, a robber's den? And he said, well, that was a place when somebody committed a crime, they robbed a bank or killed somebody or or robbed a stagecoach or something. They could go there and hide and feel safe because they did not believe that anybody would find them, especially the authorities, or it was a place where they would go and and they would never think that they would ever be punished for the crimes that they had committed. And so it always was kind of known as the robber's den or the robber's cave. Now, unfortunately, what the temple, what, in other words, the church property in ancient Israel that the temple grounds had become in Jeremiah's time was a place in which people could do whatever they wanted, regardless of how heinous, regardless of how unjust, regardless of how oppressive it might be to other people, they could go to that temple and feel okay. That the idea that you are coming into the presence of God was so foreign and so remote that you could actually go to God's temple and not feel that there would be any kind of judgment for the reckless, ruthless way that you had been living your life. And that's why in that same chapter, Jeremiah says, why in the world do you say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord? As if it's some kind of, of a mantra or some kind of spell or some kind of, of, of lucky charm that if you say it enough that the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here, that nothing's going to happen to you. He says God is not going to be mocked that way. It would be sort of the same thing Today. For people to think, I can do whatever I want or it doesn't really matter if these things are happening in my life that are against God's will. I was baptized for the right reason. Or I can do whatever I want because I'm a member of a church with the right kind of name. Same kind of thing. And later on, Jeremiah is told to go to a high place. In the midst of this kind of lack of spirituality, and he's told to go to this high place and they cut off all of his hair and kind of let the wind kind of carry it off. As a, and in the ancient world, that was a sign of mourning. Now, the Hebrews mourned very differently than the North Americans and a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, Hebrews as well, a lot of other people in the world, uh, they grieve very publicly. Where we here in the Western world grieve very Privately. And so everybody would see Jeremiah mourning. The Hebrews would see him and they would ask, why in the world is the prophet mourning? What has happened? And the answer is that the godly culture of, the the, the godly relationship, the the covenant relationship with God and Israel and in Jerusalem is dead. And you'll find in that chapter the mentioning of the Tophets. The Tophets, for a long time, scholars didn't really know what those were. But in recent, more recent uh, archaeological digs, they have discovered these Tophets and have discovered that the word Tophet actually means something like the grill or the roaster. And they were the place where the human sacrifices, sometimes child sacrifices, were being done. That kind of thing had infiltrated God's people in Judah. That's why there's mourning. And then in chapter 13, Jeremiah is told by God to go out to the local Walmart and to buy a linen waistband, and he's told to wear it. And apparently it's, it's some kind of a tight waistband because of the word devak in Hebrew is used, which is the same word in Genesis 2.24. that talks about clinging together a husband and wife to be glued together. That's the word that's described about this, this waistband being tightly clinging to, to Jeremiah. And then later on, God says, take off that waistband. I want you to go to the Euphrates, find that river, and I want you to bury it among the rocks and hide it there in the mud and to go back to Jerusalem. And then sometime later, God says, go back to the Euphrates, dig it up and find it, and guess what he finds? This thing's been sitting in the water. It's been sitting in the mud. It's been been in the process of decay. And Jeremiah finds that that waistband is useless and worthless. And the point is, the Euphrates is a long way from Jerusalem. Israel or Judah should have been clinging to God the way that 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 waistband or or that that linen strip should have been clinging to Jeremiah. And not only are they that far away from each other now, Jerusalem is from the Euphrates, but the waistband hidden in the mud is useless. Meaning that God's people have become faithless to Him and no longer like salt and like light in that community. Chapter 18, the famous potter and clay chapter. The clay pot becomes ruined while on the wheel. The potter saves it, fashions another pot. God wants to be able to do that with Judah. He wants to be able to take what is warped about them and out of balance like that piece of clay and turn it into something beautiful made by God, by God's own hand. All the while Jeremiah is saying it that if Judah does not return to God, they're going to go into captivity. The Babylonians are going to come. And so in chapter 25, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Verse 8. But because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. You know, it's not an easy ministry to be talking about your own country and your own brothers and sisters in that way. That's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. In his lifetime, he sees the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And Jeremiah is not going to be the kind of prophet that pulls any punches He doesn't pull any punches throughout the years of his ministry. If there is not a drastic turnaround in this country and a repentance on a national level where we return to God, the Babylonians are going to come. And come they did. There are three main exiles, 607, 596, and then the end in 586 B.C. And to those early exiles, he sends that letter in chapter 29 to seek the good of the city and to make sure that it prospers and settle down and to live there. But he is the weeping prophet, and he suffers. He is the suffering prophet. And the message of Jeremiah is, is not a happy one. And there was pushback to the message. In chapter 18, there is a plot against Jeremiah that at this point in the book is mainly verbal, but it will intensify. In chapter 20, Pasher, the priest, hears Jeremiah preaching, throws him in the stock because he doesn't think that Jeremiah, in the words that he's saying, makes him a very good patriot. And although Jeremiah is going to be released the next day, Jeremiah gets blue and he gets down. You know, it's not happy when you're having to suffer when you're serving God and you know that in the end, it's not going to turn out very well. And he speaks out to God about it. He says in chapter 20, I am ridiculed all day long and everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say... I will not mention His Word or speak any more in His name. His Word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And in chapter 26, the priests and the prophet prophets are ramping up their plans to get at Jeremiah. This time they plan to kill him. A few chapters later, chapter 37, chapter 38, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is thrown in a prison. And then he's thrown into a cistern. And again, the accusation, he's not being a very good prophet because he speaks of God's plan to bring ruin to Jerusalem unless the nation returns in faith to him. And all of these people want Jeremiah dead. And instead of killing him at that point, they throw him down into a well where there's no water, only some deep mud. And Jeremiah sinks down into it. And they think that that's going to be the end of that prophet. But then a fellow by the name of Ibed-Melech goes to Zedekiah the king and he asks for Jeremiah to be released and he's brought up by rote. And again, Jeremiah begs Zedekiah, the Babylonians are on their way. Surrender the city in order to spare it the devastation. But Zedekiah will not do it. And for two years, the Babylonians come and they lay siege to the city. They finally breach the walls in 586. Zedekiah knows that the the jig is up and so he tries to escape out this garden gate. But the Babylonians run him and his men down. And in punishment, they kill all of his sons in front of him. And then they put his eyes out and take him off to Babylon. And the story of Jeremiah ends with Geniliah being appointed governor over Judah. But people are upset with Gedali and he's assassinated by Ishmael. Then Ishmael is assassinated by Johanan. And Johanan grabs Jeremiah and drags him off to Egypt. Although he has asked Jeremiah, what does God, God want? And Jeremiah says, he wants you to stay here. He goes, that can't be right. Grabs Jeremiah, takes him down to Egypt. And that's the last we hear of him. Now, two quick lessons. won't talk a whole lot about this, but the two quick lessons are these. Not all kingdom work is easy work. Two words that have hurt Uh, A lot of ministries, more than anything else, are the two words, comfort zone. As long as we operate within our comfort zone and never get out of that comfort zone, as long as we operate inside of that comfort zone, we're always going to do what we can conjure up between our two ears and what we can control and empower with these two hands. It does not require any faith whatsoever to stay inside of those comfort zones. But sometimes God calls us to those places, and this is the second lesson, where faithfulness requires suffering. Now, one of the sad facts of Jeremiah's decades of ministry is that, to our knowledge, there is no record of him converting anyone. Maybe he did. There's just no record of it. All of that suffering, being thrown in jail, being, th- being beaten, being thrown in a, in a well and sinking up to your neck in the mud of having people speak out against you, of people falsely accusing you. One of the sad facts of Jeremiah's decades of ministry is that he suffered all of that without us having any record of it having an effect in anyone's life. But Jeremiah was able to keep going and to keep doing what he was doing, called by God and faithful to God because Jeremiah saw down the road another fellow sufferer. And in chapter 23, he says, "...the days are coming..." When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous, what? Savior. Savior. Jeremiah, in his day, was able to go through the hard work that God had called him to do and to remain faithful because he saw a fellow sufferer down the road, one by the name of Jesus, who was the Messiah. As John the Baptist would refer to him, he was the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And he would restore God's people. And as the other prophets had talked about, put his spirit inside of them. And that God would build his kingdom based on the confession that this one was King and Lord. Maybe you've never made that kind of allegiance in your life. The faithfulness to God is what God calls you to be. To come out of that life in which you are in control of everything and in control of everything running your life into a wall. And coming out of that kind of a life, finding not an easy life, but a blessed life. And a life where even though you find yourself in a valley or that dark tunnel at times, you feel like somehow God has prospered you just by the very sense of His presence in your life that enables you and strengthens you to be everything that God always intended for human beings to be. And it's very easy to do. You just change the direction of your life. What the Bible calls repentance. It's washing your sins away through baptism and faith and participating in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And it's confessing that He is going to be Lord of your life and persevering through all of life, knowing that God is with you in faithfulness, in faithfulness to His presence everywhere that you go. Living as salt, living as light, learning what it means to love other people, learning what it means to minister to other people and to be ministered to by other people. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there's anyone here this morning that can be ministered to in that way by a church family, we want you to come down and talk to our shepherds as we stand and sing together. The Lord, for He died my soul to.